It's usually both off the radar and off the map when people plan a trip to Europe. Yet the little island nation of Malta offers a great chance to mix fascinating history and a sunny, isolated perch in the Mediterranean. The weather is fantastic all over the year. If you go in uh, probably November, December, you can still swim in the Mediterranean. We'll get introduced to Malta and its pivotal role between Europe and the Arab world coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves. And next time you're at the Louvre in Paris, imagine what it was like when Nazi invaders were on the horizon as Parisians scrambled to protect the priceless collections you see displayed there today. I mean, it's really extraordinary. I don't think it could be done today. They evacuated the Louvre in a period of 10 days. Robert Edsel brings us more tales of how Europe's art treasures were protected from the ravages of World War II. We'll also get into the spirit of Halloween with your stories of places you visited where you felt an unusually strong connection to the world beyond. Don't be afraid. It's just travel with Rick Steves. The tiny island nation that's home to the Maltese Cross is a hotbed of Western history. We'll learn about Malta in the middle of the Mediterranean, and we'll hear about your favorite haunts, literally, coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-RICK. First, our recent conversation with a listener who dreams of seeing absolutely everything displayed in the Louvre made me think about the tense days that Robert Edsel described for us in an earlier edition of the show, when Parisians packed up everything in the Louvre to protect it from Nazi invaders. Robert runs the Monuments Men Foundation, and he joins us again to remind us of the heroic work that went into saving the art treasures of Europe from the dangers of World War II. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Robert Edsel, who writes The Monuments Men, the greatest treasure hunt in history, really, the story of how an Allied division sent out to recover and, and save the great art of Western civilization during Europe's Nazi nightmare. Robert, when you think about the Louvre Museum, what was it like before the Nazis took Paris, and then what was it like a, a couple of years into the, um, into the occupation? Well, the Louvre got several million objects in it today. At the time, uh, it was four or 500,000 objects. But, you know, imagine uh, 1939 going to visit the Louvre or any of the major museums throughout Europe, you could have rolled a bowling ball down the Grand Gallery of the Louvre and you would have hit nothing other than the empty frames leaning up against the wall because the works of art, the paintings, the sculpture, uh, coins, all the things in the collection had been evacuated to area chateau, many of which were moved around on multiple occasions. The Mona Lisa was moved on five separate occasions during the war, trying to keep it out of harm's way, the initial concern being bombing and the fires that would follow. And then later, of course, theft by Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. So just from a practical point of view, all of these precious canvases, and if you've walked on the, the Grand Gallery, it's like a, a hike, uh, you know, countless paintings. They left the frames. Did they just um, knife out the, the canvases, or did they take them apart very carefully, or what? No, they took them apart. They had about, I mean, it's really extraordinary. I don't think it could be done today. They evacuated the Louvre in a period of 10 days. The oh, well. local citizens uh, volunteered, as took place in Italy and other countries to help the curators there because they just needed manpower, building crates, finding vehicles, uh, fuel, etc. The frames they didn't take, not because they weren't valuable, they're hugely valuable, but they occupied more space in the crates. So the focus was on the actual canvases or panels taken out of their frames, uh, packed in these crates, loaded up on the trucks, and then moved to areas where some of these things very, very large could be fit in. In the case of, say, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, the great painting by Rembrandt, Nightwatch, a uh, painting that measures uh, maybe 10 feet tall by 18 feet across, is rolled up like a carpet because there was no way to move the thing to a place of safekeeping without rolling the canvas. Now, I understand in the Louvre, for instance, there's actually, if you knew where to look, on the back of canvases, there'd be swastikas indicating that these were taken by Germans or wanted by Germans, or, or there's symbols on the paintings today that show which ones were were brought back? Or what can you look for physically as a sort of memory of those difficult times? Well, and, uh, you know, without shamelessly plugging books, you, in many cases, have to find the books that talk about what's on the back because you can't take the painting off the wall. Um, that would probably get any of our visitors more attention than they'd ever want to have on one of these trips. Yeah, okay. But uh, we do know that in the case at the Louvre, on the back of Vermeer's astronomer, one of two Vermeers stolen by Hitler and the Nazis, there's a uh, eagle swastika 
uh, from the inventory. Um, there's an inventory number on the back of Leonardo da Vinci's Lady with an Ermine at the Charter Rescue Museum in Krakow, Poland. Um, we located three paintings that were at the uh, SMU Meadows Museum several years ago that had the uh, Nazi inventory codes stamped on the back of those paintings. It appears they were properly restituted, but many of the paintings that were stolen by the Nazis on the back, they put these inventory code numbers. In the case of the Rothschilds, you might see an R1171, which would mean the 1,171st item stolen from the Rothschild family and there were inventory codes for each of the major families from whom these things were stolen. So it's an incredible undertaking, and it just goes to show while a war's going on, the amount of diverted attention and manpower from fighting combat that was directed towards this looting operation. Reading through monuments meant that struck me many times. How much interest there was in art when people are bombing entire cities and untold thousands of people are being killed. Still, you had this parallel scramble going on for art. Was art used as as rewards for military heroism or for collaborators? Well, art was the kind of the weapon of propaganda by Hitler, trying to project to the German people this uh, vision of what he saw as the master race, but it was also a, a major source of uh, conferring attention on uh, rewards for Nazi generals, rewards to Hitler. Uh, early on in Hitler's leadership, many of the industrial leaders were encouraged to uh, use funds to buy works of art that they knew Hitler or Goering or other Nazi party leaders wanted to have in their collections. So it's a major source of currency hmm. and a tremendous distraction during the war. I mean, you have Goering back to Paris making 22 separate visits to the Jeux de Pomme Museum where Rose Vallon worked secretly underneath their nose uh, in as much as she understand German without their knowledge to look at works of art that he wanted to steal for his own collection or for the Fuhrer's collection, this all taking place while he's in charge of knocking England out of the war. It's really extraordinary. Wouldn't the works of art in the Jeux de Pomme have been what we call the degenerate art that Hitler didn't like? Well, many of the works were degenerate paintings by uh, Picasso, by uh, Van Gogh, Monet, and others that the Nazis were removing from their own museums and trading and using uh, sales proceeds to acquire works of art that they valued, some, in many cases the old master pictures. Of course, some of these degenerate works were ultimately destroyed, but the works that float through Jeux de Pomme were whatever the great uh, French collectors, many of whom were Jews, some of whom were dealers, uh, the mm -hmm. dealer collectors, had collected. And so it didn't just involve uh, works of, say, the Western world, but some of the great tapestries of the world, some of the great Islamic works of the world, anything that was of value that was a prized item for collecting. So many of these great collectors uh, acquired them with very discriminating taste. And of course, it's one of the many paradoxes of this story that the Nazis would consider Jews subhuman and yet prize and respect their taste for what was acquired so much that they would try to be confiscating the things that they had in their own collections. Or maybe just be pragmatic and say, well, it's not to my taste or my ideology, but it's worth a lot, and I'll take this degenerate piece of art here and this Jewish piece of art there and sell it and swap it for something that fits my style. Is that true? I think that's true, and it's one of the reasons why I am so confident that so many of the things that mm. are missing uh, will someday surface, and I think in the days ahead, and it's why we try and get the word out to people that are, have any concern or question about something that maybe uh, was brought home after the war, they acquired, that they don't know where the thing was during World War II, contact the Monuments Men Foundation and send us a photograph and let us be of assistance. I'm speaking with Robert Edsel. He's the author of the fascinating book, The Monuments Men. Robert, I know that you are helping with a tour to these sites uh, just for independent travelers that want to splice in a little bit of this Monuments Men history in their European travels. Are there stops that are of particular interest uh, in, in this topic? Well, they are, Rick, and you've mentioned a couple of them on this program and some of the other conversations we've had. As you pointed out earlier, people go to the Castle of Neuschwanstein and everything looks pretty hunky-dory and, and mm. Disney-esque, as, as you point out. But it was a, a very, very different scene 55 years ago, uh, really one of the key storage facilities. And we have many photographs from that experience in my first book, Rescuing Da Vinci. Uh, and you won't find it in the guidebooks there. Surprisingly, when you go today, you will not know about this part of, of the true. role that that castle played during World War II. Nous 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert Edsall, the author of The Monuments Men. Robert, I would imagine you enjoy traveling Europe and, and just some sightseeing. And when you enjoy the art treasures of Europe today, let's close by just having you share which spot you're most moved and thankful for the work of, of these Monuments Men. Well, Rick, uh, there are so many great places in Europe. Of course, Paris with the Louvre, uh, the Jeu de Pont Museum, which uh, everyone that walks through the Place de la Concorde walk by without knowing its pivotal role during the war. Berchtesgarden is a fantastically interesting place. It's horrific in some senses, the heart of Adolf Hitler's existence there in the Austrian Alps. Uh, it's beautiful up on top of Eagle's Nest, and you can walk through a remarkably well-designed visitor center to understand why that part of Austria was so important to Hitler. The Castle of Neuschwanstein, another place that Harry Etlinger and the Monuments Men were, where some 20,000 paintings stolen from the French collectors were found as a result of the secret information Rose Vallant had gathered. There are smaller places along the way, a cemetery outside Maastricht where one of the monuments officers uh, is buried, a fellow named Walter Hutchhausen, one of two monuments officers killed during combat protecting works of art. For me, when I think about places such as Munich that had the Fuhrerbau and uh, one of the Nazi party headquarters that stored so many of these works of art, to me it's a remarkable achievement to think that these monuments officers stayed in Europe and worked in what was the Nazi Party headquarters and Hitler's own uh, office there in Koenigsplatz, gathering these works of art and staying there, trying to sort out where they came from. And for me, it's not just a specific work of art. I mean, I certainly love to see that great painting by Leonardo da Vinci, the Chartereski Lady with an Ermine in uh, Krakow, out of a personal affection and Leonardo's great brilliance. But when I think about these monuments officers and what they went through just surviving the war, surviving combat, the irony working in these uh, the headquarters of evil during the war in Munich with all these works of art trying to get them back, it's an incredibly heroic effort. It's an honor for me to represent them today through the work of the Monuments Men Foundation. Robert Edsel, author of Monuments Men and founder and president of the Monuments Men Foundation, I'm really thankful for the work that you do to keep the mission of the Monuments Men alive and share it with, uh, with our public. Uh, Robert Edsel, best wishes with your work, and, and thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Rick. Next stop is Malta, in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's Travel with Rick Steves. tiny island of Malta, actually it's a little group of islands, is an independent country, and it's stranded halfway between Sicily and, and North Africa in, when you think about it, what was the heart of the ancient world, and so much history passed back and forth. And I, like most Americans, don't know a lot about Malta. It's so accessible, people who go there love it, and I want to learn more about it. So I'm joined by Tommaso Ponti, and he lives just a few miles north of Malta in Sicily. He's a tour guide, and he knows Malta well. Tommaso, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Grazie. So why do you think Malta's worth the trouble to visit? 
uh, because it's one of the off the beaten path destination today, Malta, still now. It still feels off the beaten path. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, when you think about Europe, you always think about Italy or France or Spain. You never think about the small, the small, you know, state like could be Malta. Malta is one of the smallest state of the European Union. You know, if you consider the dimension, the extension of Malta is like Philadelphia area, only the city of Philadelphia, is. this is the extension of the five islands of Malta. So five islands, one of the smallest countries in Europe, for sure. Yes. And easy to get to? How do you get to Malta? We have one big international airport in La Valletta, Luca. This uh-huh. is a big international airport, very well connected with London, for example. Now, La Valletta is the capital city. The capital city is La Valletta. La so Valletta. London, British Airways, or Air Malta, they connect every single day for many, many times oh, a so day. Oh, so you could fly from London straight to La Valletta in La Malta. La Valletta, or Rome, for example, or even Sicily from Catania. Now, there's about, what, uh, half a million people living in Malta? Uh, 400,000 people in and Malta. what language do they speak? They speak two languages. The official language is English and Maltese. Very fascinating, the Maltese language. They have about, in their alphabet, they have 38 letters. 38 it's letters? one of the most complicated languages really? we have. Now, how can they have more letters than we do? Uh, because, you know, they have different sounds. Each sound is different. They represent with the letters. Don't forget that Maltese is Arabic. It's a sort of... Arab language. This is where the Arab culture and the European culture is sort of, it's an island in the middle. Exactly. So they speak Arab, but they write with the Latin, with the Roman letters. It's very fascinating, Maltese. So Maltese is the official, and English is the official language also, because this was part of the British, you know, United Kingdom. And also it was a part of the Commonwealth. So it gained independence from Britain Yes, in 1964. 64, and, and then it became an independent republic, and now it is part of the European Union. European Union, since a few years, is a part of the European Union. You know, Malta was very criticized in 1976, 1978, because it was the only state, the only republic which made some special agreement with North Korea, Libya, Russia, you know, so was very much criticized because the National Popular Party took the power. They said, no, we don't want to stay with Europe. Better we stay with these, you know, revolutionary countries. Really? But then they lost the election. You know, they went close to Europe and they joined the European Union a few years ago. They joined also the Euromoney a couple of years ago. Okay, so they have euros and there's no visas or any problem like that. It's just you go to Europe, you go to Malta. You know, we always hear about the Knights of Malta. Who this is they? another another very fascinating chapter. You know that um, the history of Malta was very similar to the history of Sicily. Malta, like Sicily, was part of the Spanish kingdom, and Charles V, the emperor of Spain, uh, the king of Sicily and Malta, which donate uh, the little islands of Malta to these knights. Charles V, he was the most powerful guy in all of Europe during yes, the, the, the big time of Spain. What century was that? Uh, was in the 16th century. So the 1500s. He gives Malta to the Knights of Malta. Yes. It was a sort of religious order. You know, the mm, son of the aristocracy, the second or the third son, which didn't get married. So this is where the extra men would end up. Exactly. So the second sons, the guys who didn't get the inheritance, because in the old days, the the oldest son got everything. Yes, the oldest son. And And these other guys, they were some rich families, and they were rattling around, well, let's give them something to do. So they become knights. Exactly. Were they basically functioning as the protectors of the pilgrims? The protection of the pilgrims and also the protectors of the religion, the Roman Catholic religion. Ah, they were the defenders of the faith. Exactly. Against the Ottomans, against the Turkish, against uh-huh. the Muslims, you know, because the Muslims, the Ottomans, they tried to invade Europe, to Islamize Europe right. several times. So thanks to these knights that the Christianity was preserved. So if you wanted to join the army to defend your culture's religion, you could join the Knights of Malta and fight the Muslims. Exactly. The All Order right. of San John's, actually. The Order of St. John's was one okay. uh, important order of the Knights of Malta. Now, going back a little further in religious history, Malta is famous because St. Paul was shipwrecked Shipwrecked Malta. there, yes. Uh, this was, you know, a very important event that happens in 60 AD in the island of Malta, yeah. What is the character of the Maltese people? Oh, well, uh, we can talk for days about this because uh, they are 
Arab. Uh, their influence is very Arab, but they are European in the same time. So uh, there is a mixture, there is a blend between the European and the Arab culture. Look, they are in the center, in the middle of the Mediterranean. The language is important. Yeah. Don't forget that today, just today in Malta, a lot of uh, investments are coming from United Arab Emirates, Dubai. You know, uh -huh. they are investing a lot of money in building hotels, casinos, and so on, because they think that uh, this area will be developed in a few years. This will become uh, like the, the like Las the, Vegas of uh, the Mediterranean. Like the Dubai of the Mediterranean. Yes. One of, one of these incredible free trade investment centers. Exactly. And so, on. so the Arab culture, uh, the Arab culture is very important for them. Malta is actually subtropical in its climate. The weather is fantastic all over the year. If you go in uh, probably November, December, you can still swim in the Mediterranean. And uh, the temperature, for example, in the winter uh, is around 70, 71, 72 degrees. So it's very, very mild. Of course, a summertime could be very hot. Sometimes we have 100, 100. So it's a good place in the winter. You live in Sicily. Is there easy? Do you go by boat from yes, Sicily? Yes, so we have a catamaran or a a hydrofoil. Cat catamaran, a fast boat. Yes, fast boat or hydrofoil, which go every day from Catania or Pozzallo to Malta. It takes about a couple of hours to get there. So it's a reasonable side trip from Sicily. So if you're doing Italy and you want something different, check out Malta. Yes. Uh, if you're going to take me to Malta tonight and I want to have some good food, what, what would be a good thing to eat in Malta? Well, uh, probably uh, it's a kind of dish that Americans, they don't like because every time I talk about this dish, they, you know, a little bit disgusted, but they eat rabbits in Malta. <laughs> like we do, you know, yeah? because in Malta they have millions of rabbits. Sometimes <laughs> they go hunting for rabbits and they prepare rabbits grilled or whatever with, you know, typical. So they go wild rabbits. They go out and shoot a rabbit. You yeah, cook it up. and then they prepare the rabbits uh, or fish. Fish, for example, they prepare delicious swordfish. Uh, and the recipe is, is very simple because they use grilled swordfish with capers, olive oil, um, nice. oregano, and lemon on top. So it's very delicious. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking about delicious Maltese food with Tommaso Pante. We're going to Malta, just a short boat ride south of Sicily. Craig's on the line in Charleston, South Carolina. Craig, thanks for your call. Hey, appreciate you taking my call. I have a question. I was looking at traveling to Sicily, but the more I hear about Malta, uh, my question is how expensive is it and what's the best way to get there? Well, Malta, we can consider Malta uh, expensive as the rest of Europe. It's not really expensive. Even with the euro, uh, the price uh, rose, become very expensive because with the Maltese lira was uh, much more inexpensive. But now with the euro, we can balance the same cost that we have in the other section of so Europe. So you'd pay the same there as in Madrid or yes. Paris or Rome? Let's compare, yes, Malta to Madrid or to Athens or Rome. Yes, it's exactly the same price. But the price are increasing because... Must tell you the truth. They import everything. Mm. Nothing is produced there. So they import from uh, U.S. They import from United Kingdom, from Italy. So probably price are a little bit more expensive. From uh, example, food. So if you go in a restaurant, probably you pay a little bit more. Let me say five percent more than you could pay in Naples or Rome, for example. Because everything is important. Everything is important. Craig, when are you planning on going to Sicily or perhaps Malta? That's a good question, too. I was, that was actually the second part of it. What time of the year do you think it's still warm enough to go swim in Malta but not so hot that you might melt underneath the sun in a 100-degree heat? Okay, the best period to visit Malta, if you want to swim, of course, in the Mediterranean Sea, is end of September, the beginning of October. But if you go in Malta because you want to appreciate, for example, the beautiful weather of spring. Spring is the best period. So uh, the beautiful wildflower, the poppies, you know, calendula and so on. Spring is the best period. So let me say March and April, if you want to appreciate the landscape. If you want to swim at the end of September, the beginning of October, this is also the other period. And we have nice beaches all around Malta. In the island of Gozo, for example, and Comino, yes, we have interesting area. Are there some special dishes that Craig should be aware of when he's in Malta? Yes, absolutely. For example, you can 
taste the so-called pastisi. Pastisi is uh, with ricotta cheese and mashed peas. This is a typical, you know... Mashed uh, peas and ricotta cheese. Ricotta cheese okay. inside. What is the word again? Uh, pastisi. Okay. Pastisi. Or the typical cannoli. Cannoli that we have cannoli, in Sicily. Cannoli, like in Sicily. Yes. In Malta they also. Are, they are reproduced also in Malta. And cheeses from goat. I mean, we have a big production of cheese in the island, especially from goat, yeah. All right. Craig, good luck on your trip. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks for your call. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring the island of Malta. When you think of the history, it's been ruled by Phoenicians, Greeks, Romans, Arabs, the Knights of Malta, the French, and the British. All of these different civilizations have swept through, and it leaves this tiny island with a rich history, lots of things to see physically, Tommaso, how, how do you explore the island? Do you well, use, uh, the exploration of the island is very easy because if you get in the big island, the island of Malta, there is a frequent service of public buses. The public buses in Malta are really fun because they are so colored. They are orange, they are pink, they are yellow, and so on. And the cost of the ticket is so uh, ridiculous, inexpensive. I mean, 35 cents of euros or 55 cents, you can go from a point to another of the island easy. Now, that sounds a little bit... Bit like North Africa. Yes, yes. Very colorful buses, dirt cheap. Absolutely. And the main departure point is always La Valletta. La Valletta is the capital. Next to the city gate, we have this big bus station. Okay, so you could make it small enough where you could make your home base, La Valletta. Yes. And then take the buses out to the countryside. Yes, it's easy. If you want to explore the other island, like Gozo. Now, Gozo has this pre Roman stuff, right? Pre Roman. Very, very old. Yes, very old. We have some prehistorical also settlement. In Gozo, very interesting, and you can get there by a boat ride. It's only twenty minutes to from the Gozo. G O Z O. Now, what are these? These are like older than ancient Rome. Absolutely. What do you see? What are these sites? I mean, you have uh, some prehistorical settlement in Mata. I don't know if you have been to Stonehenge, for example. It's Stonehenge, very yeah. similar to Stonehenge. So we have this sculpture in stone all around in the Isle of Malta. And probably because we have this parallelism with the Stone Age, because of the solstice, uh, that's why the prehistorical, you know, they built this. So you can see the Maltese Stonehenge. Stonehenge. And Rome, at its peak, the Mediterranean was called Our Lake on, Our. on Roman maps. Exactly. And Malta was right in the middle. Was right in it the middle. It must have been a strategic part of their whole trade system. Absolutely. This is the reason why the Romans, uh, but before the Romans, I would say also the Phoenicians uh, ah. and the Carthaginians. Don't forget the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians, they originated from the present Lebanon. Okay. okay and Lebanon, then uh, yeah. for commercial purpose, they emigrated to the island of Malta for the trade and commerce of the purple color. You remember from the, the shell, color? from the shell. So, wait a sec. so purple was really important in Lebanon and in, in Phoenicia. Exactly. And they could get that purple color in Malta. In Malta. Because purple was the color of royalty. Exactly. Of the, wow. Yes. And then from the Phoenicians, we had the Carthaginians because you know that the Carthaginians were the Phoenicians which emigrated from Lebanon to Carthage in Tunisia. And then from there, they spread all over the western side of uh, mm. the Mediterranean. So Malaga, for example, in Spain, Sicily, and Malta also. And during the Phoenician Carthaginian period, Malta was, uh, you know, one of the most important islands. Who was Hannibal? Who did he fight for? Hannibal was a Carthaginian. That's also. what I thought. Okay, so yes. this is a big deal. So this is the powerhouse culture. Exactly, exactly. That would threaten cultures to the north. Exactly. Sometimes, you know, Carthaginians were in Europe in the same period of the Greek. The historians, you know, they fight between them sometimes because they said that the Carthaginians, they were wild without culture. It was like Las Vegas. Anything goes. Yes, sir. In the Bible, they said, you know, we can't all go to Carthage. I mean, that was just a phrase like, well, we can't all be hedonists. Yes, that's true. So you have that influence. Yes. Is there anything from Roman... Ancient yes, Rome? we have, I mean, we have a small ruins about the Roman time because I told you this was used as like an island of a passage. So, so there'd be trade uh, fortresses. Yes, fortresses. And Sicily has some great Roman villas. Yes, uh, but not in Malta. Not in Malta. Malta. So no. the Roman villa would be on Sicily, on but, Sicily. but uh, it was part of the Roman trade system. And then in the medieval times, you have... You have fortress because that's the whole crusader thing in the mm -hmm. in the Knights of Malta. Exactly, they fortified all the island to prevent the invasions of the Ottomans. 
which tried to Islamize again the island of Malta. So the wall of fortification and the watchtower in Malta are very, very important. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tommaso Ponti, and we're talking about Malta, one of the smallest countries in Europe, stranded in a little island 60 miles south of Sicily, halfway between Sicily and North Africa. Boy, it sounds like it's in the middle of nowhere, but it's not. It's in the center of the world in a lot of ways, and you can sort of derive the importance of a place by what kind of art is there. And I understand there's actually Caravaggio paintings on Malta. Yes, there is a Caravaggio painting because he lived for a couple of years in Malta and there are many, many, many churches in Malta. Don't forget that this was a sort of a Christian Roman Catholic center against, let me say, UK. That's why probably UK, they gave the independence to Malta to don't have any religious problem in 1964. Well, hang so, on, so it was very important religiously. What does that have to do with the United Kingdom, with, with Britain? Because, you know, Britain, they are Protestant. They have another Ah, religion. okay, so Malta is very important for Catholics, and Britain said, doesn't matter if it's Catholic because we're not Catholic. Yeah, we give So them, they gave them their freedom. Exactly, in 1964. But it so, was very important in the days of Charles V. And so absolutely. On. During the Spanish period, Charles V, in the 16th century, Malta was one of the most strategic points. In fact, Charles V gave to the Knight of Malta. It sounds like per square inch, there's more history and things to see and do and eat and learn in Malta than almost any place in Europe. I think so. I think so. Because, uh, you know, we have a lot of history there. We have a lot of uh, churches and so on. Here's an idea. You could do an open jaw trip around Europe. That means fly into one port and out of another. You could fly into London or Paris or Amsterdam, travel through Europe, do Italy, and Italy gets more intense and challenging as you go farther south. Your finale for Italy would be Sicily, and then take the hydrofoil or the catamaran for a couple of hours from Sicily, Catania, to Malta. Yes, sir. Have that be the finale of your trip, and then you fly home via London back to the United States from Malta. That's the perfect way, absolutely. That's the perfect trip. How many days would, you could spend four or five days in Malta? Four or five days in Malta would be enough. Nice. Yes, because you can travel all around the island. On your last time in Malta, Tommaso, what was the magic moment? Uh, The magic moment in Malta was uh, uh, to have a nice uh, passeggiata, a nice stroll in Bujiba. Bujiba is one of the most beautiful beaches we have in the island of Malta. It was in the sunset. I've seen the sun right in front of me and the beautiful promenade over there. So. And everybody's out. Absolutely. Yeah. You're with all the Maltese people. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Tommaso Pante, thanks for introducing us to Malta. Thank you. Grazie. Up next, we get into the spirit of Halloween by opening up the phones for your calls at 877-333-7425. Let's hear about the scariest places from your travels and ancient places where you felt a connection to another world of an entirely different dimension. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Boo. It's that time of year when things are spooky, and in your travels you can encounter some spookiness, and that's what we're talking about right now. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. And if you have a scary story you want to share on the email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Jack's on the phone in Sussex, New Jersey. Jack, thanks for your call. Yeah, actually, uh, we were on a tour in England, and uh, one of the towns we stopped at was a little town called Stanton. And we went to a church called St. Michael's Church. And what I like to do is sometimes I take my my compass with me, and what that does is it looks for electromagnetic fields, which are kind of like creepy areas. We checked out the graveyard in the church, and we found some strong magnetic fields in one corner of the church. So we went there, and it was like, you know, you just got this, like, real creepy feeling when you're in that area in in the church. Really? Yeah, it was so it, it it registered on your meter, and you could feel it in your gut. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Are you like just a normal person, or do you have this happen to you all the time? No, I, I'm just a just a normal person. We uh, usually like to take our little compass around. I don't have a regular uh, magnetic meter, but I just take my compass. And what was nice, I was trying to show the other people on the tour about how to do it too so they really got into it and everybody had a compass they were starting to check out different areas so let me get this straight jack you got it just a regular compass and you walk around and it will act erratic when there's something uh creepy going on 
Yes, exactly, because what it'll do, it'll point away from magnetic north and go to an area of high magnetic intensity. And what might that be? Usually it's an area of a paranormal uh, okay. area where you may have a ghost or, or now, some other type of paranormal activity. I don't know if you realize this, uh, Jack, but you were at a, a church dedicated to St. Michael, and you can conclude when you have a church dedicated to St. Michael that there was some pagan activity there before Christianity because when the Christians came in a thousand years ago or something, they would make a point to put St. Michael on that spot because he was the saint that would take care of pagan spirits. Well, that's pretty weird. That's, yeah, so. that's creepy right there. <laughs> Anytime you find a church of St. Michael, you can pretty much predict there was a Stonehenge kind of thing underneath if you dig down there. Well, that would make sense then why I was getting high magnetic readings then. No, I'm, I'm, getting, kind of, I'm getting kind of creeped out right here. It's just yeah, that's it's so cool, exciting. Huh? You know, that reminds me once way back when I was a, a minibus tour guide. I would run around Britain with eight people on a minibus. We'd never know where we we're going to sleep tonight. And we checked into this one kind of a guest house on a hill, sort of in a windy sort of netherland. And it was a cheap place, and we needed a room, and I didn't have reservations for my tours back then. We checked in, and it was on a ley line. You know, the ley lines are the right. sort of lines that connect all the Stonehenge-type sites and the St. Yep. Michael's and the pagan things, and they crisscross England. And some people think they brought the stones all the way to Stonehenge by taking advantage of the energy along these ley lines. Well, we checked into this guest house, and all of us went to our rooms, and it was so odd. Within, like, five minutes, we were all out in the hallway thinking, we can't spend the night here. This is too creepy. And like a bunch of cartoon characters, we all grabbed our bags, ran back to our bus, loaded it up, and just drove out of there. We vacated. It was so wow. it was so creepy. So yeah, this part cool. of England is that way. And if you go to Glastonbury, that's sort of the capital of all this. Yes, okay, yeah. We were, we were in that area. But that was the only, uh, St. Michael's Church was the only one I really got a real good uh, reading from. I found a new use for my compass now. I'm going to go to St. Michael's Church and see if it quivers in a creepy kind of way. Yeah, what you want to do is, before you go into the churchyard, check your, your north reading so you make sure that you know which way your north reading is. So if the needle does move out of the north, you'll know. But uh, it oh, was pretty man. cool, and sometimes it'll actually go around. You wouldn't want to do this alone. You take your travel partner with you. <laughs> yes, and that's okay. for sure. That's for sure. Take Jack in New Jersey, you. thanks a lot, and, and, and stay safe. Okay, okay thank bye you, bye. Rick. Okay, bye-bye. Anne's on the phone in Elwood Park, Illinois. Anne, thanks for your call. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, were you listening to Jack's story I there? I was. It sounded very creepy. Wow. What is your, what is your uh, creepiness overseas? Uh, well, my friend and I, two years ago, were just hanging around in Prague at about 11 o'clock at night, and we know that the city is a little bit haunted with ghosts here and there. So we were just taking pictures, just goofing around, and all of a sudden she takes a picture of me and she goes, there's something in the background. So I turned around behind myself to see if there was anything there, and there was absolutely nothing. I mean, there was no people around, nothing. We look at the picture and we zoom in onto it and there's these two figurely looking things. It looks like blurs. So then we zoomed in a little bit closer and one of them would look like a hunched over person and the other one actually had this blurred out face to it. And we just, we just stopped where we were. We're like, oh my goodness, we are in Prague and there's ghosts around us. We just, needless to say, we just went home right afterwards. We were a little bit freaked out. <laughs> so now, you actually have this image on I your... I do. I should send it to you. If you email it to us, we'll, we'll put it on our website. Okay, definitely. Yeah, that and is cool. The zoomed-in part, too, I'll show you. So we will share it with our listeners who are bold enough to go to our website and check good. that out. Wow. Perfect for Halloween. Behind you, there was two blobs that turned out to be faces. Yes. Where One. were you in Prague? Um, we were right in the middle of the town square. Town square, because that's where the Jan Hus statue is. Yeah, exactly. And Jan Hus was that reformer who was burned at the stake 100 years exactly. befo before Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. And every time I look at Jan Hus, and I, I think of the flames engulfing his body, yeah. and I think of the national pride the Czechs have for exactly. a man who translated the Bible into their language so they could read it direct without uh, monks and priests uh, you know, editing it for them and so yep. on. And I just think there's some spookiness there. There's there some really stuff is. going on. Now, one thing i got to ask you, had you consumed any of the Czech beer before this happened? <laughs> Not that night. Because <laughs> it's... Previous nights, we did. <laughs> you know, the Czech beer, it hits your table like water exactly. does here. It's and, very strong. And it's very strong. I, <laughs> for years, I went to the Czech Republic traveling around, and I'd have a beer at lunch. Not because I order it, but because it's sort of the default. That's what they give you. Yep. And I noticed my productivity after lunch was <laughs> way down. 
<laughs> and I, I never put it together until later I learned that the beer was uh, so much stronger. And I, I had what I called check knees. So uh-huh. if, if you're seeing funny faces and it's after you've had some of that check beer, I think you've got to discount that. But you, exactly. did, it, you did it alcohol-free. No, alcohol-free on that night. <laughs> Are you going back to Prague and uh, see if you can meet your friends again? Hopefully sometime soon. Um, All right. Hopefully one day we'll see some other ghosts around. Yeah, it's a great city with or without ghosts, but I know Prague is one of the more haunted places in Europe. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks, bye. Jenny's on the line in Houston. Jenny, are you okay? I am. How are you, Rick? I'm getting kind of scared. Everybody's had these stories, <laughs> and I just hope they're not coming this way. But uh, do you have something you can share about scary things in your travels? I do. My husband and I were in Paris a couple summers ago, and we went to visit the catacombs. And, you know, there's a tunnel that you walk through before you enter the actual room with the bones and the skulls in it. And right when we got to that entrance, there was a sign in French that warns you that you're about to enter the Empire of the Dead, and I kind of made a mocking, ooh, scary noise. Okay, let me interrupt you here, because maybe our listeners don't quite know what the catacombs are, but way back in the French Revolution times and Napoleon times, they decided that graveyards were not hygienic, and they decreed that all of the graveyards around the churches would be emptied and turned into public spaces, and they would move all of the bones to the old quarry uh, tunnels under the streets of Paris. So they spent a whole generation, really, carting all these bones under the streets, and they're stacked neatly, and it is literally millions of skulls and tibia and fibia. And today, it's an attraction where tourists can go down this long, long, long stairway and then walk through these ancient quarry tunnels surrounded by millions of bones from unearthed cemeteries of all the churches in Paris. Now, with that in mind, you saw the arch announcing that what was happening, and you can carry on with your story. Sure, that the arch was announcing that you were about to enter the empire of the dead. And so, like I said, I I said, ooh, scary, and my husband took a picture of me, and we crossed the threshold, and immediately my husband's flashlight popped and went completely dark, and my flashlight went out. And we fiddled with them for a couple of minutes, but couldn't get them to come back on, So we stepped back out into the tunnel, and I kind of said, oh, I shouldn't have been irreverent. I'm so sorry. (laughs) My flashlight immediately came back on, and we remained very reverent throughout the rest of our tour in the catacombs. And like you said, the skulls and the tibias and fibias are right there. You could practically touch them. Um, But the scariest part to me was when we were working on our travel blog, we uploaded that picture. And to this day, when you visit our travel blog, that picture just shows up as as a red X. You can't see it at all for some reason. The moment all of the spirits of all those bones of the permanent Parisians put your camera in the dark. (laughs) Exactly. You know, when you're down there, you you can almost smell the bones, can't you? And it's very cool and crisp down there oh, the city. You know, you've heard of Plaster of Paris. They have all yes. this uh, white chalky stuff, because that's what they were uh, mining, apparently, or quarrying. And when I go into the catacombs for the rest of the day, my feet are caked in this white stuff. And That's right. It's all over your shoes. And you, you remind yourself, you've entered and survived the empire of the (laughs) dead. On my very first time, I went there as a teenager, and that was before it was very sophisticated, and you could just basically go down there and uh, rummage around. And I remember as a crass, uh, thoughtless teenager, (laughs) I picked up a skull. Oh, wow. And I I looked at it, and I could do that Hamlet thing, you know. And I I came (laughs) just moments from putting it into my little day bag and, and, and stealing it. And I thought, this would be so cool to have a skull on my mantle when I get home. And I decided not to. Just because I thought it would, it would spook me, it would haunt me, it might even uh, oh, curse yeah, me, definitely. you know, it could curse you. Uh, and then uh, I went back a couple years later and I had my nerve up and I was going to actually do it. And then all the skulls were wired in place and they wouldn't let anybody do that. And they had guards checking your bags as you left the place. So apparently they had some people stealing skulls. And that reminds me a, a little story of my own, uh, Jenny. I was in... Romania once, visiting friends, and this was during the Soviet era, and uh, I had to shuttle around every night to a different home. And in Romania, they have a tradition of unearthing the graves of their dead grandparents after a couple of generations, and they literally put the skull that's been rotted clean, you know, on their mantle. 
So you're in somebody's living room, and right next to the TV and, and over by the magazines on the mantle, you've got Grandpa's skull <laughs> sitting on the mantle. And I thought, that is a unique, a unique tradition you find only in Romania. Wow, that is incredible. Hey, well, when people go to Paris, would you recommend that they enter the Empire of the Dead? Absolutely. It's so fascinating to see the way the skulls have survived the ages. Some are green, some have holes in them. It's just really fascinating. And with one caveat, respect the dead. Absolutely. All right, Jenny in Houston, thanks for your scary call. Thanks, Rick. Great to talk to you. Take care. Stay safe. Okay, you too. Jerry's on the phone in Minneapolis. Jerry, thanks for your call. Well, my wife and I are relatively new travelers, but uh, we were in Paris two years ago and went to the catacombs. Both of us uh, are claustrophobic to start with. <laughs> so, so you were it just... probably wasn't the best place in the world to go. Now, these were the same catacombs Jenny was just talking about, right? Rue Denfer, I believe. It That's is, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. We found it absolutely amazing. Pretty much experienced the same thing. Just It was amazing to see the mortality that's been stacked artistically throughout the catacombs. And it's interesting to note that all the dead from each church is collected together, and there's a thoughtful little plaque that says, these are the remains of the parishioners of this or that church from this or that arrondissement. It is, and the stories that I heard at least were that the priests brought all the remains down in the middle of the night in black carts. Yeah. Um, so the, the Parisians did not see this actually happening. You know, ultimately it cleaned up the city, and uh, they have nice public spaces around the churches now. And as we travel all over Europe, we've got to remember the churchyards used to be cluttered with uh, tombstones because everybody wanted to be close to the church in, in their death to wait the uh, second coming or his day of uh, salvation or whatever. It was not hygienic, and it was congesting things. In the age of uh, revolutionary time, when, when people were being so logical and less emotional, and people were even questioning whether religion made sense at all, uh, Napoleon said, we've just got to unearth all these stupid graveyards and get them outside of town or, or move them out. And that really made a big change on what we see in Europe today. My wife and I, basically, our scary part was trying to get out with all these crystallized oh, yeah. skulls and everything. But Now, now you had an experience in the Père Lachaise Cemetery also? Oh, um, well, to me, that cemetery is just amazing. But I saw the most eerie, I guess it's a mausoleum, but they're all eerie there. I mean, it's such beautiful artwork. But there is one, it's... Uh, the family Raspail? Raspail, yes. Where it's just a normal-sized mausoleum. But we were there um, close to sunset. There's like a granite or marble figure in mourning mm. that has its hand up on the mausoleum. It's a full-size figure, and it's just totally draped in um, what would look like mourning rags. And it's. Uh, but it's out of stone. It's out of stone, yeah. and there's there's no face. You know, that's that's a whole art style that I've noticed in cemeteries around Europe. It's sort of late 1800s, I think, and it's this Belle Epic or Art Nouveau something, or I don't know what, but it's very super emotional. The National Cemetery in Milano is really great that way. And, of course, in Paris, the ultimate cemetery is the one you're talking about, Père Lachaise. And we've even got a guided tour of that cemetery in our book that's that's very popular because you go there and you can see, you know, Jim Morrison and Frederick Chopin and, and uh, lots of Oscar famous... Wilde. Pre- Oscar Wilde. He's the one that's covered with uh, lipstick, isn't he? Uh, yes, I, I myself didn't kiss it. My wife thought about it, but she thought, this is too hygienic, you know. But you but, can wander around forever in that place, and it can be spooky. But especially when you get up into more of the um, the World War II survivors, the Holocaust survivors. And up into oh, and the there's Jewish powerful stuff from the Holocaust and World War II, a lot of heroics and a lot of memorials there. Jerry, thanks for your call, Jerry, and stay safe this scary time of year, okay? Well, it's actually Halloween is my birthday, so it's kind of oh. a fun one, too. Uh. <laughs> then you'll be okay. <laughs> That's a good okay, one. Okay, happy travels. And Michael's on the line in Raleigh, North Carolina. Michael, thanks for your call. Uh, thank you, Rick. Uh, we were uh, doing the, sort of the Luther's uh, Footsteps uh, tour in, uh, in Germany, going to Wittenberg and Eisenach and Wartburg Castle and so forth. We were uh, visiting the site just north of uh, Erfurt, where Luther was uh, supposedly hit by lightning, and when he prayed to uh, the saint and vowed that he would become a monk if he was saved, and it's kind of hard to find, but a very nice little park, very small with some monuments and, and a nice grove of trees, very nice little spot. And a few nights later, we were camping, and uh, we were in a terrible, terrible thunderstorm. 
you know, we were in a dome tent with my wife and son, and it was raining and uh, lightning and thunder. And I've, I've never been in a thunderstorm this, this strong or the thunder and lightning so close. So that could was, scare you into the arms of the Lord. Uh, we survived, of course, and I didn't vow to become a monk <laughs> afterward, but you could really feel... You could imagine uh, what somebody 500 years ago that really was, in those days, the weather was, was God angry or something like e- exactly. that. Exactly. I mean, you could really feel that in that thunderstorm. Yeah, people who don't know the story of Martin Luther, how he really got serious about his, his uh, mission on this planet, that lightning storm was quite pivotal, wasn't it? He was going back to uh, effort to, to go to law school, Huh. which uh, his father uh, wanted him to, to be, a, be a lawyer, yeah. not a monk. And hmm. uh, that was the pivotal point that uh, he continued on into effort and walked into the monastery instead of the, uh, instead of the law school. I don't want to draw too much into that, but had that lightning not occurred, every Christian today might still be Roman Catholic. That's a, a big Thought, possibility. Thought-provoking. All right, Michael, thanks for your call. Thank you. No oh boy, when you go to Europe, you need more than a money belt sometime. The place is crawling with ghosts. Thanks for your calls. This is Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves. Happy Halloween. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in the spooky seaside town of Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at KERA Dallas for their help today. There's nothing scary about joining us as a caller on Travel with Rick Steves. Send us your email address at the Radio Waves link on our website, and we'll notify you about the dates and topics of our next recording sessions. That's how you can ask Rick and his guests your question or share your travel experiences with us. It's all on the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll look for you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Boo! Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.